Hello and welcome to Slate Money, the regional episode of our weekly podcast, guiding you through the important business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, but I am a proud graduate of Glasgow University, and we are going to be talking about Scotland this week and whether it will become independent. Would that be an economic disaster? We will also talk about the possible unintended consequences of a new federal banking regulation. Will it hurt infrastructure investment? And we will do a podcasty look at my interactive game up on Fusion.net about lifetime earnings and the benefits of going to college. And finally, we will do our usual numbers round. Let me introduce our regular guests. We have Kathy O'Neill, head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University. What's your number, Kathy? Hi, Felix. My number is one-fourth. And Jordan Weissman, Slate's Moneybox columnist. How, how are you feeling on the numbers front? I'm feeling well, and I'm feeling like my number is going to be 349. I think I know what that is. My number is 12 billion. And with that, we are going to hand it over to Jordan Weissman to tell us everything we need to know in 30 seconds or less about Scotland. So next week, Scotland will be going to the polls to vote on an independence referendum. They are considering breaking free, seceding from Great Britain and going alone uh, for the first time in 307 years. There are economics involved here. There's cultural resentment. There's so much to talk about. And it's up in the air. We don't really know. The polls are neck and neck. They're tight. There's a real chance this will happen. I think it's kind of crazy, but I'm curious to hear from Felix his take considering he actually lived there for four <laughs> years and has a little bit more insight than I would about the mentality of of the Scotsman. And one of the things is that I've been reading and reading and reading about Scotland this week in preparation for the show, but I can't get at why they want to do it. It's just all, it's all about the ripple effects. What will this mean for Northern Ireland? What will this mean for Catalan and Spain? Like, why? Tell me. I think it's simple. That since the birth of the European Union, virtually every European nation has wanted independence. The security which you get from being part of a big country is not something you need in these peaceful times. And nations, by their nature want independence. The Catalans want it, the Basques want it, the Scots want it. The Welsh maybe not so much, actually. Weird. Like, there, there is a Welsh nationalist <laughs> movement, but the, it's, it's not nearly as strong as the Scots and the Catalans. Why, why are the Welsh so meek? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to go there, but I will tell you that there's a massive pride in being Scottish. And the Scots with some justification, feel that for the past 300 years they've been run by the English. And the English, especially now, are very unlike the Scots politically. In England we have a conservative government, and as far as I know there are no conservative MPs from Scotland there, anywhere in Scotland. There is one. Oh, there is one, one conservative <laughs> MP currently. The, the joke right now apparently is that pandas are better represented in Edinburgh than conservative MPs because there are two giant pandas. <laughs> <laughs> so what you have, especially now with the Tory government in England or in, in Britain as a whole, is the Scots being run by a government they really didn't elect. It doesn't represent them. And they feel that they can and should be able to govern themselves. That's the simple 
I, I kind of want to um, dovetail off that just because I, I actually spent a little time just reading through the economic justifications that the Scottish National Party has come up with. They have a whole, you know, long document explaining all the reasons why it'd be great for Scotland to go independent. And part of it is this division over the welfare state. You know, Scotland really does not like the reforms that the Conservative Party has put in place. There, there's some pretty fundamental differences about the future. Much of the document just rails about the growth of income inequality, also the London centricness of of the British uh, economy. Uh, the idea that essentially all the economic policies have led to the financialization and therefore the Londonization of the UK. I mean, Edinburgh has always been a financial capital, and yeah. in fact, it has two enormous British banks yeah. in Lloyd's and RBS, which stands for Royal Bank of Scotland. And those banks would almost certainly have to move to England if Scotland became independent. It's not that the Scots don't appreciate the value of money management. Aberdeen has a big money management um, industry, as does Edinburgh. But the outlook they have on how an economy should be run is deeply what you might call Northern European slash Scandinavian. They want a sort of Scandi equal economy. They don't like the massive inequality that you see between London and the rest of the UK. Having said that, it 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 sounds to me, I and mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys know more about it than I do, that they they sort of have a vision of what they want, but they don't actually have any negotiated settlement for things as important as what their currency would be after they break that's, off. That's absolutely true. What they, Their vision is basically they want to be Norway. And this actually kind of brings up the other big X factor here, which is oil. The North Sea is, of course, the source of Britain's oil wealth, almost all of it. And most of that oil, more than 90% more than ninety percent of it, would probably go to Scotland in the case of independence. Well, how do they even know that? I feel um, like that there, hasn't been negotiated. So there's well, a, so I can answer that question, yeah. which is that no one is going to negotiate with the Scots unless and until they vote yes in the referendum. Okay. You can't yeah. renegotiate because the English are just going to say, you can't have anything. So yeah. the first thing you do, the, what sequencing here is, first of all, you have a referendum. Then you start serious negotiations about things like the currency, about the oil, about what happens to the nuclear missiles, which are currently in Scotland and none of the Scots want, <laughs> and all of these other very fraught questions. You know, I haven't heard any, I hadn't read anything about the nuclear missiles, but that seems really important and like people would be a little bit uh, there would be a little bit more talk about it but uh, the consensus seems to be uh, that because of the way uh, international rights are usually drawn essentially something called the median line exists and they would use that as the the guide point for who gets what oil but Scotland essentially envisions a future where they take this massive amount of oil wealth that they would have and use it to create a sovereign wealth fund much like Norway and use it to kind of shore up their welfare state and have this uh, Scandinavian-style social democracy. The big controversy and why this is a little uh, cockamamie in my, in my mind is no one really knows how much oil is left in the North Sea. A lot of people think it's depleting fast. It he- the amount of being produced peaked in 1999. So they're kind of gambling their future on this idea that they're going to be able to go in and invest a lot and, and kind of up their production. And they're also gambling their future, as Paul Krugman pointed out, um, quite rightly, on the fact that they would be able to use the pound and that would be a good idea for them even in times of crisis, which we've seen isn't always a good thing. The currency question is incredibly fraught. They don't have any good options. They can use the pound and then just be beholden to whatever the Bank of England decides for what's known as RUK, you know, Rump UK, Rest of UK. It doesn't even have a name yet, the, <laughs> the, 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 the country that would be left over. 
Or they could try and join the euro, which would make less economic sense. That's not automatic. They they would probably become EU members. That's not automatic. They could try their own currency, in which case they'd basically become Iceland or New Zealand, and that has huge problems of its own. Especially when you have a giant bank sitting there that you can't necessarily bail out because you're such a tiny country. But but, but they would have, yeah. you know, unless you have your own currency, you don't have a lender of last resort. And it's difficult. As we've discovered, that if you yeah. don't have a lender of last resort, you know, you run into problems. But I think the thing which is most important to understand here is that I don't think there's a single Scot who is genuinely voting yes in this referendum for economic reasons. They're not saying we would be economically better off if we voted yes, so we're going to vote yes. They're voting yes for emotional and patriotic reasons. They're voting yes for sort of negative reasons of they hate the English and they just don't want to be ruled by the English anymore. And it strikes me that there's something almost millennial about this. It's like like the kids these days, as as they call them, you know, will go out and say that they are perfectly willing to earn less money and to maybe earn less than previous generations have been earning on the understanding that they can also feel better about themselves and make the world a better place and that kind of thing. And I think that's what the Scots are trying to do. They're saying, even if it doesn't make sense economically, it's, it's the right thing for us to I do. I have a lot of sympathy for that. You know, I mean, they, if they feel like they're not being represented in their own political system, they're like, let's do this by ourselves no matter what. That's kind of cool. I do admire that. I will say there was some polling early on, and this is a couple of years ago, that did say economic factors actually were very, very front of mind in all of this. Essentially, a lot of people said, if I can be $500 richer a year or 500 pounds richer a year, sure, I'd vote yes. And if I'm 500 pounds poorer per year, I'll vote no, which surprised me when I saw it because I went into reading and writing a bit about this, assuming that it was mostly this sense of national pride at stake. But yeah, I mean, in the end, I I feel like if this happens, you have to be right. There just has to be so much more at play than just dollars and cents. On which note, we are going to move on to a very different type of dollars and cents, which is the banking industry and its relationship with it. I'm so confused. I need Kathy to explain this to me. (laughs) I'll do my best. So the financial crisis happened, and we're still trying to regulate our way into a place where we feel safe that it won't happen again. So the latest idea of the regulators, led by the Fed this time, the Fed is a regulator of banks, The latest idea they've concocted is the idea of letting certain things be considered safe and other things be considered risky. And the the surprise announcement this week was that they decided that municipal bonds were considered risky for the sake of meeting capital requirements. What this means, if it is upheld, which it might not be, I believe, it's, it's in limbo because there's been a lot of outcry about this, is that it's going to be more expensive for municipalities, towns and cities, school systems and, you know, subway systems and such. It's going to be more expensive for them to borrow money to build infrastructure. This goes against Obama's push for infrastructure in a big way. And I, I just don't understand it. OK, I completely understand it. And I think it's exactly the right thing to do. And I would take issue with your idea that they're putting these buckets of safe and risky. They're not creating buckets of safe and risky. What we're talking about here is the amount of cash and highly liquid 
securities that banks need to hold on their books as part of their capital requirements. The key thing here is liquidity, the ability to turn it into cash at a moment's notice. It's not riskiness. It's just liquidity. And municipal bonds, as a general rule, are not liquid. And indeed, we saw during the financial crisis or just before the financial crisis in 2007 when the credit crunch first happened, that there was basically zero liquidity in municipal bonds. If you wanted to sell them, you couldn't. Now, since what we're talking about here is not the riskiness of the assets, but just the question of whether you can sell them or not, the Fed is actually entirely right to say, by all means, hold these things on your books. Just don't call them liquid because they're not. Lisa, I have a question, and, and this is sort of my own, I guess, lack of knowledge about the markets. But my impression was that the Fed is saying uh, sovereign debt does count as liquid; that it is falling into that. Basket. Treasury bonds definitely count. Treasury yes. bonds, not do foreign does foreign debt or some some foreign sovereign bonds do as well. Uh, yeah. So why is it that? I mean, okay, maybe it's a limited number of sovereign bonds, and that's why. There's a small number of of, of corporate bonds, a small number of other bonds, a relatively large number of stocks. Basically, go back through the financial crisis and see what continued trading all along and what seized up. If it seized up, it's not liquid. If it continued trading all along, then it's okay. That that was what I was going to say. So why is it that municipal bonds are so much... Why are they so much less liquid than some of these other assets? Because there are thousands of municipalities, and each individual bond issue tends to be quite small, so it doesn't trade very often. Let me give you another reason it is, which is that municipal bond issuance is famously overly complicated and confusing and already overly expensive to the municipalities because... The people that the bankers that make these deals make them needlessly complicated and then make them buy swaps, et cetera. And they're all very tailored for every single situation. So one one possible alternative, Felix, to this would be to deliberately create standard contracts for municipal bonds so that they would be easier to trade. That's interesting. So just to see if I'm, if I'm getting this right, it seems like we, municipal bonds are, are basically you have a stock in like the most almost most li- or a treasury bond the most liquid thing it's every one of them is basically the same um, whereas municipal bonds are the exact opposite each one is its own special snowflake each issuance and so that there it's almost impossible to make it makes a it a lot harder that there is there is one way in which people try to make municipal bonds a little bit more fungible and a little bit more liquid which is this thing called wrapping that there are these insurance companies like Berkshire Hathaway or people like that who will guarantee a municipal bond and say, well, you know, whether or not the issuer actually defaults, we will guarantee that these coupon payments and principal repayments will, will be made. And so at that point, people stop caring so much about the credit of the municipality and they start caring only about the credit of Berkshire Hathaway, which is very good and they know it. So it becomes much easier to trade. But those bonds which come with the wraps, again, tend to be very small. You don't get big wrapped bonds from California or New York or the places which would naturally have liquidity. I guess what I'm saying, I mean, I guess an overall statement about this is like, I think one of the most basic functions of a bank, if you think about what should banks do, you have the you know individual depositors, they should you know be able to get their money out and they should have FDIC insurance to prevent bank runs. And you have like, well, they should help finance cities and towns. Like that is a basic property of a bank, a basic function. Yeah. And the fact that these new regulations are going to stomp on that, it's like, well, can we think of a way for this to work better? Well, 
I think you're right that banks can and should help finance cities and towns. But the way that banks finance things is by lending money to those places. If a bank wants to lend money to a town or a city to help it on infrastructure, that's fine. But the whole point about bonds is they're not loans. If a bank is lending money, it's a loan. If a municipality is issuing a bond, then it's issuing a bond to bond investors. Municipalities already have this incredible advantage over all other bond investors that the bonds are tax exempt, which means they're going overwhelmingly to individuals who want to not pay taxes on their bond income. That's where municipal bonds go. I think this idea that banks can or should be a significant part of the market for municipal bonds is a little bit weird in the first place. Well, okay, just let me say one more thing about the original comment I made, which is that corporate bonds are not that liquid. They also default sometimes. Municipal bonds, besides like Detroit, I mean, they they are very safe investments in general. How do you set that line? And I, I think and the, the, Fed- line, the line, and, you know, the line can change. Dan Tarullo at the Fed has said that the Fed retains the ability to throw a few particularly liquid municipal bonds into the basket of securities considered liquid if it determines that these securities are, in fact, liquid. But in general, one of the fundamental features of the bond market is that it is not a liquid market. There are very, very few liquid bonds out there. We discovered this during the financial crisis. Bond liquidity has actually been decreasing since the financial crisis. And although treasury bonds are liquid and a few agencies and and, and a handful of others, the fact is that there is a liquidity problem in the bond market. And in general, if what you're looking for is liquid assets, which can be sold very easily, even in a crisis, you should not be holding individual bonds. I do have a question. Um, Is there any sense at this point of how much more expensive this could make uh, building infrastructure for cities and towns, and also if they are considering putting some bonds in a basket and, and and like leaving others outside of it, does that mean that New York City, for instance, could essentially fund its infrastructure for cheaper than Charleston, South Carolina, or whatnot? so? Like, I don't actually have the numbers, but yeah. I'll, I'll just say one last thing, which is that sometimes you really shouldn't borrow more money. uh, For example, the subway system of New York. I mean, great example. Like, there are examples that make you just like throw up your hands where you're like, oh my God, these municipalities are actually borrowing too much money. Maybe it should be harder to borrow. Every sports stadium ever that has been funded with a bond issue. And and these questions about whether they count as liquid securities for bank regulatory purposes are always, in terms of borrowing costs, going to be secondary to the deeper issues of credit worthiness. Okay. Enough. Enough of that, because I want to get onto my toy, which I launched Felix is very proud earlier of this, toy. this month. <laughs> I'm, it's I'm a great very, toy. It is a great toy. And, and if you haven't played with my toy, I would encourage you to play with my toy. My toy Kathy's can be found. eyes just went so I, I wide. I played with just, Felix's toy quite a bit yesterday. Yeah, oh, I'm, thank you for playing with my toy, Kathy. My, my toy can be found at fusion.net slash lifetime underscore earnings. Um, and what it does is it allows you to see the lifetime earnings of various different people, college grads, people with masters, people with PhDs, people with science degrees, men, women, that kind of thing. And uh, we got a few letters, which was which is great, um, from listeners who've been playing with my toy. But first of all, Kathy, what did you find when you played with my toy? This won't be my last comment, but the first <laughs> comment I'll make, um, I found that, according to your toy, I shouldn't have got bothered to get a PhD in science and mathematics, because with a master's in mathematics, I would have 
been the same place in terms of my lifetime earnings. And because you weren't earning very much money when you were getting your PhD, there was a significant opportunity cost. You could yes. have been out there earning money armed with mm-hmm. only a master's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is something like, which I think people who are in academia often fail to really understand that academia is such a sort of hermetic system that no one really thinks, well, I could leave academia and earn lots of money, and that's a real opportunity cost to staying in school. I liked Felix's toy, uh, which is a great piece of program. It's got people flying around in capes to draw lines on the graphs and such, because there's been this very long conversation about whether or not college is worth it, um, which I think is kind of a bad question for reasons we can get into later. But one of the reasons it's a bad question is because it's worth it for different people in different ways, and almost everyone's going to get a different return depending on a million different factors. And this is a really good faith effort to capture that. Like, for example, I noticed that if I had had a penis, um, (laughs) I would have had a lot more money by now. Um, By the way, that projection didn't actually work for me personally because I went to finance and then I quit and all sorts of things happened. But I'm just making the point that with respect to the data set they had, men made quite a bit more money than women who have PhDs in mathematics or science. Or anything. The, the gap between men and women is almost, regardless of what the qualification or lack thereof is, it's massive for college dropouts. It's big for high school graduates. You can find it for master's, PhDs. The only place I really couldn't find much of a gap, and even there there was a small gap, was in people with an arts PhD. Hmm. The men with arts PhDs, you know, they are doomed just as much as women with arts PhDs. Arts PhDs, by the way, being one of the classic degrees which just don't pay for themselves at all. There's also a sort of public policy issue that I think um, the fact that Felix had to put this tool together actually gestures to, um, which is Felix used Payscale data, correct? It's a a site called Payscale.com, and essentially it's self-reported data from people who want to compare their salaries to other people in the field, figure out what they're worth. And this is an issue that people who write about higher ed deal with again and again, is that a lot of the information we have about what, how graduates of specific colleges and programs fare in life come from these self-reported surveys. There's a real desire out there to get the government to collect this themselves, which they are capable of. It's an argument called a, about something called a unit record system. It would be very simple. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to do it. Thanks for bringing that up, because I did have questions about the data, Felix, um, for two reasons. First of all, Go back to the women-men discrepancy for PhDs in math. I'm pretty sure a lot of that had to do with the fact that some women left the workforce and then came back and got less good jobs. That doesn't show up exactly on the graph because of the way the data is collected. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of limitations to the data. That is one of them. And and the other thing is we weren't looking at PhDs in math. We were looking at all sort of STEM PhDs. One of the points which is worth making here is that within the group of STEM PhDs, women are more likely to do sort of maths and physics, while men are more overrepresented in things like computer engineering, which wind up paying more. So that's part of the Mm. reason why you get the difference. Also, you're absolutely right that when you drop out of the labor force for a couple of years and then come back, that hurts you in terms of your earnings. The tool does not record those two years or three years when you're not earning. It only records the years when you're working full-time, but you do take that hit for having dropped out, which men tend to do less frequently. Right, so you're basically only voting if you're working, essentially? Correct. And that's another problem for you know the extent to which college dropouts are making less money than college grads is actually under-exaggerated. It's under-reported because of that same thing. 
The one thing which you don't see in this toy is that the unemployment rate is so much higher for high school grads than college grads, and that alone is a reason to go to college. But let's go to some of the letters which we got, which were fantastic. Lucy McDermott wrote in and said that she was somewhat disquieted at the prospect of foregoing four years of earnings potential. She's doing a PhD in neuroscience because PhDs are not smart things to do, I think, as a rule, if what you want to do is maximize your lifetime earnings. I think if you if you want to maximize your lifetime earnings, you enter the labor force as quickly as possible and you start earning as much money as quickly as possible and getting raises. And spending four or six years getting a PhD does not help you. Oh, I was going to say, you're not rolling out professional degrees at that point, are you? Well, pr- no. So the, the, one of the other things which we see is that medicine degrees are fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I also, I just, I don't want to uh, disregard the fact that People just pay women less as well. And it's so there is <laughs> it discrimination is, it is as well. There, so that should not be discounted. I have a friend who had the same amount of years out of PhD, got a professorship job offer of the same time her friend who went to a PhD program with her, a man, got the offer from the same school and they had a $25,000 discrepancy in their offers. She found that out just because he told her, but there was no reason given. I'm just, I just want to make the point that no, no, like, women do get paid less. They, they, they just get it, paid this less. Is, this is a real thing. Uh, and and then the, the next letter came in from Michael Kreskin, who um, said that this is an interesting. As a 36 year old, he says, if I'd stuck with my undergrad degree, he would be predicted to make eighty four thousand dollars a year. But with a master's degree, theoretically making me more skilled in the same area, he is only expected to make $75,000 a year. Now, of course, there's a lot of variation here. And one of the things you can do with this tool is show the ranges of the you know 10th and 25th, 75th, 90th percentiles. But it just goes to show that once you have your degree, once you have your undergrad degree, the marginal returns to doing further education start diminishing quite quickly. I think it does depend. There, you know, There is census data on some of this. And, uh, you know, it's not great, but and there there are also other government surveys that like, you know, that, that people have used to try and track this information for people like lawyers and such. And, you, you know, a lot of professional degrees, especially because they have a lower opportunity cost in terms of time out of the workforce compared to a PhD, really do lead to higher overall lifetime earnings, it seems. There is a range and you do have to think about it in terms of a distribution and where you're going to fall in that distribution. But I do have to disagree some with the idea that the best way to always maximize your, your lifetime or, Earnings is, is going to be going straight out of college. There are some pretty big exceptions to that. Well, no, the, or, only, the, the big exceptions are the professional degrees. Yes, yeah. professional but, degrees but, but, and MBAs too, to a large degree. Well, well, that counts as a professional okay, degree. Okay, yeah. And I just also want to throw in that there's an enormous amount of self-selection for this, of who goes to these sites. So, for example, I read a New York Times article about Payscale, and they mentioned that um, if you're a CEO of a, of a company in New York City, you're expected to make around... $250,000 a year, which is really not true. So CEOs don't go to Payscale and put in their salaries. Actually, that is true. I mean, CEO just, everyone with, you know, three employees calls themselves a CEO. It doesn't, CEO doesn't mean CEO of a big publicly listed company. And this um, is why distributions matter. All I'm saying is that there's self-selection. I'm just saying that if you look at government data rather than pay mm-hmm. scale data, you will see that CEOs don't get paid nearly as much as you think. I, I do, do think the bigger point about self-selection is is important. I think Kathy's right. I wouldn't say take this down with a grain of salt because really in a lot of respects it's the best we have. And that's why it's good to work with it. And I think the more tools we see like this and the more people do push the, these numbers out there, the more pressure that will build 
on the government, on colleges to collect more comprehensive data for, straight from tax records, for I'd instance. love to see non-self-selection yeah. bias data. It'd be great. Well, we have that from the census. Mm-hmm. I mean, and one of the reasons why I feel relatively comfortable with this data is precisely because when you put it up against the census data, it's entirely in line with it. Oh, that's good. One of the reasons why some people really like the pay scale data is because where the census won't tell you what school people went to. They'll tell you if they went to like a four-year college, but it won't tell you you know, if they went to Brooklyn College or Harvard, Payscale does. And it, it just gets more detailed in general. And uh, by the way, I filled out the Payscale thing, and it's kind of fun to do that. It's kind of fun to see where other people who've filled out the Payscale data, how well they're paid compared to you. One final point, which I think is worth ma- making, which came from Wayne Weeby wrote in and said, what about the, the present value Rather than just the lifetime earnings, what happens if you look at the present value of your lifetime earnings? If you just want to maximize the present value of these things, how you know what kind of discount rates should you use? That kind of thing, which brings up this idea that John Carney had on Twitter when he when he started playing around with this, which is that one of the interesting thought experiments here is, is instead of going off and spending a hundred thousand dollars on education, why don't you take that hundred thousand dollars, which somehow will automatically avail itself to you, and just put it in the stock market and then you know you you and start working at the same time and then you get both you get the job and you get the money working for you so one of the, some people do uh, do those comparisons not using the same detailed pay scale data but using census data for instance um, for different degrees and what they, they found for the most part is that the average college graduate and Average is an important word to use there because you know there is no real average graduate but still for the, it seems that a college degree earns better than stocks, earns better than bonds for the most part, um, certainly earns better than gold. Um, and so it's a, it, it is it, when you do the net present value calculation, which is just – and so there is a sense that, yes, just putting the money in the stock market and working with a high school degree actually is not as good a deal as going and, and well, graduating. Can I also just throw in – that that's the it's asked backwards to do that. <laughs> oh yeah, because, oh yeah. Small point. Also, because, it's asked backwards, right? Because like you get you get well paid at the end of your life, so your the net present value is larger if it's if it's steeper. But but the truth is, you really need money when you have babies in diapers that need babysitters. That's when you need the most money. So. Can we figure out a way of thinking about money so that you're just like, how can we have the most money when we need it the most? That's more important than like how much. Yeah, I have no idea how to do that. That's a topic for another week. We're going to move finally on to the numbers round now. Kathy, what was your number? My number is one fourth because I I don't know about you guys, but I have been glued to ESPN Talk Radio this week, listening to the whole Ray Rice domestic violence debate. And it's just really sad, but also kind of makes me optimistic that we're finally having this conversation. So I just had to have some kind of domestic violence related statistic. My statistic is one fourth of all homeless families are homeless because of domestic violence. My number is 12 billion has absolutely nothing to do with domestic violence. It has everything to do with violence against poor leveraged lenders. I know we all feel sympathy for them. Mm. Um, (laughs) When Blackstone, the big private equity group, bought Hilton in 2007, they paid $5.6 billion and borrowed another $20 billion to make the total $26 billion purchase price. Those lenders who lent Blackstone or lent Hilton actually $20 $20 billion did not do very well. They immediately ran headfirst into the financial crisis and wound up basically losing about a billion dollars 
overall. It's, you know, not all of their money, but some of it. Meanwhile, Blackstone has done extraordinarily well. And if you pick up the latest issue of Business Week, you'll see a story by Bill Cohen talking about how they are now up $12 billion on their investment. So they wound up putting in about $6.5 billion altogether. And on that, they've, they're, they're now up. It's worth about $18 billion. It's, They've made about $12 billion. It's an incredible return to them. Very bad return to the lenders. The moral of this story is, number one, it actually helps sometimes to go through a financial crisis because that allows you to shaft your lenders a bit and buy some more equity at a very low rate. And number two, if you are going to get involved in private <laughs> the equity... upside of down there. <laughs> if you are going to, get, going to get involved in private equity, make sure you're on the equity side of things rather than on the lender side of things. <sighs> I'm still depressed about the one fourth. <laughs> I'm still on. I'm still on that. So my number is three hundred and forty nine dollars, which is the starting price of the Apple Watch, not the iWatch, but the Apple Watch. Finally, Apple has jumped into the wearables uh, market. It's going to try and revolutionize it. I, I definitely have the outlook of time will tell. No pun. That actually, really, truly, there was no pun intended wow. there. I was at, I feel so gross having said that. But anyway, <laughs> you know, the same way pe- there is enormous amount of doubt about the iPhone when it first came out. A lot of analysts were convinced that it was just sort of the worst of all possible worlds. Com- lots of little features combined into one device that wasn't really necessary. No one wanted all those things jam-packed together. The Apple Watch does a lot of different things. It does fitness. It does, you know, it, it, it lets you pay for the checkout line uh it lets you check your calendar will people want all these things combined together maybe so they also had the like larger iphones and they have the ipads of different sizes so i'm feeling like at some point you'll just be able to enter the number of inches you want on your i screen and you'll get whatever you want well the thing the thing which i'm sad about is that we seem to be moving away from the one-handed device the watch is very much a two-handed device the bigger iPhone, the iPhone 6 Plus is definitely a two-handed device, much like the iPad. And the iPhone 6 is also bigger than the iPhone 5, which it's replacing, which in turn was bigger than the iPhone 4. All of these devices are just getting bigger and bigger, and and it's the end of the small, smart device which just sits in one hand and can be used one-handedly. I'm sad about that. I I am a little bit sad about that as well. I think that maybe that will create a market, though, for someone else to kind of swoop in and, and reclaim those consumers. Well... That is it for us this week. Thank you very, very much for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store, or if you like it, leave a review. And you can please do write to us with your comments, complaints, anything else. Slate Money at slate.com. The producer for Slate Money this week was Stan Alcorn. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week, or actually, Kathy and Jordan will talk to you next week with a special guest replacing me because I'm going to be on holiday on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.